You're listening to a message preached at Front Range Baptist Church by Pastor Dean Miller. It is our prayer that this message will be a help and an encouragement to you in your spiritual walk. Now, here's Pastor Miller. Look in your Bibles, Acts chapter 15. Now, those of you that are new to our church, this is, we're 51 weeks into studying the book of Acts. I'm preaching through the book of Acts. So I want to just bring you up to speed very quickly where we are in this book. Chapter 15 has probably one of the greatest implications on your life and my life as Gentiles in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a wonderful explosion of the gospel being preached by the apostle Paul and his co-laborer Barnabas. They had traveled up to Antioch in Syria. They traveled all the way up into what is today modern Turkey, up into that place the Bible calls in Asia. All the way up through that province of Galatia, they had been preaching the gospel and Gentiles had been getting saved left and right, left and right, left and right. I mean, many Gentiles are being saved. And there's been a growing debate. Now listen, this was not a new thing. This was something that had been uh, a low murmur, and uh, at different times it had come to different uh, octaves of debate throughout, throughout the course of these years. Remember, from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down upon that church in Jerusalem, from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 10, when Peter was going to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, 10 years had passed before the Jews had really taken the gospel outside of Judea and Samaria and going into that area that God calls the uttermost part of the earth. It's been 10 years, and Peter himself is still struggling with going to eat and to fellowship and into the home of these unclean people, the Gentiles, that the Mosaic law, the Jewish law, has forbidden for Jews. And God had to show Peter that it was okay that he could go to these Gentiles and not to call unclean what God had cleansed. Aren't you glad today that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin? Aren't you glad that salvation is, is not just to the Jew only, but also to the Greek? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I'm so thankful for that. Because I happen to be one of those everyone. I happen to be a who in the whosoever. And I'm glad today that the gospel was for all. But this was a debate that was growing in this church. And you'll notice in Acts, in Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1, uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse number 1, look at very carefully what happened here. Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch, and certain men which came down from Judea, they came from Jerusalem there, taught the brethren at Antioch and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So the message that these men from Jerusalem had brought to Antioch in Syria was this, hey, you guys are wanting in on this salvation, but you're missing an important step. You need to be circumcised and fully commit to Jewish life and bring yourself under the law of Moses, and then you can receive Christ as your Savior. And this was, this was the message that these Jewish believers, these men who the Bible said they were some of the sect of the Pharisees, they were coming. Remember, they were ardent keepers of the law. But Jesus had rebuked these men over and over again. He said, you say you keep the law, and outwardly you make the cup clean, but inwardly you're full of corruption. Outwardly the tomb is whitewashed, but inwardly it's still full of dead men's bones. And so the law was, was, was being lived out by these men to kind of clean the outside of the life. They looked religious, they looked sanctified, they looked ceremoniously pure, they, and, they, and they let everybody know it. And they let everybody else know where they fell short. And they were constantly finding fault with everybody because that's what the law does. The law brings death. Life comes by grace through Jesus Christ. 
And so Peter uh, was part of this, and he was even being carried away with this belief of these Jewish people and saying, yeah, you know, we got to really be careful. We can't really intermingle here with we Jews and those Gentiles. And so, man, Paul did not take to this lightly, and I am thankful that he didn't. Paul and Barnabas traveled back to Jerusalem, and in that place, there was a great debate. We went through that last Sunday. If you want to go back, you can read about, or you can listen to the message last Sunday about the great debate, and this was the great debate. Um, Peter was still wrestling with it. Many in the Jewish church were still wrestling with bringing these unclean Gentiles in. So, Paul comes back, and They have a great debate, and we talked about last Sunday how differences need to be settled in the church. And by the way, this applies to your home too, by men who are willing to listen and follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit and hear both sides and seek God's wisdom and pray about it and get the Word of God, and then everybody do what the Bible says to do. So after much dispute, the spiritual men stood up and led the way, and they began to say, hey, This is not what we need to do. We cannot trouble them. In fact, I want you to look over at verse number 18, please. Uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse number 18. James concludes his remarks by saying, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? God knows the end from the beginning. God had this whole idea of the gospel and the church and this mystery of Jews and Gentiles baptized into one body by one Holy Spirit, by one faith in Jesus Christ. God had all of this already planned, and it was known to God from the very beginning. This was not God's plan B. Can I tell you, you were not God's plan B. I was not God's plan B. I was God's plan from the beginning. From the very beginning, God sought to reconcile me to himself. So James concludes this in verse 19 when he says, Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. I'm so thankful. I mean, the whole church. There was unity in this decision. The whole church. They said, let's send men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas surnamed Barsabas and Silas, chief men among the brethren, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. Here's what the letter said. Greetings, the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. They did not come with our authority. They were not coming with the authority of James or the church of Jerusalem. These men just went out on their own accord and went to go tell these people, hey, if you want in on this gospel, you've got to get in with us. You've got to be like us so that you can have Christ. And he said, we gave them no such commandment. So verse 25, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden, now watch this, than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare you well. Our message this morning is on this. This is the letter that they're writing. To all these Gentile believers, and they gave them, you could say four, but possibly three major issues that they said, these are the things that you need to do if you want to do well in the Christian faith. And what is this all about? 
The title of our message this morning is A Good Conscience Toward God. A Good Conscience Toward God. They wrote this letter and they said, we are not going to trouble them. Paul had already written in his epistle to the Galatians, there be some which trouble you. They're troublemakers. They come and they preach another gospel unto you, which you did not receive of us. And he said, they are perverting the gospel. And can I tell you, it is a perversion of the gospel when you add anything to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died at Calvary, he said, it is finished. There is nothing else needed to make a man right with God and a God to receive man than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I am so thankful that these Pharisees did not win the debate. Could you imagine singing today? Blessed circumcision. All is at peace. Can you imagine singing that? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the law of Moses. No, it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Not amazing circumcision, how sweet the sound. It is a perversion of the gospel to say Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus. Paul said, that's troubling you. It frustrates the grace of God. Because here's the problem with the law. If salvation is of the law, any part of the law, then it has to be all of the law. Because if one man offends in one point, he is guilty of all. And, and so it's either all of law or it's all of grace. It cannot be both. So this debate takes place over salvation. So then, why? Why do they write this letter, and why do they come to conclusion to give them these stipulations? Why these necessary things? And that word literally means things of necessity. These are things of necessity if you want to do well in this life that you've received. You've received this life of Jesus Christ by faith. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, and now that you have this, you have eternal life. Now, if you want to do well in this new life, then these are things of necessity. Now, many people have taught that this was a compromise that was being made, that James and the apostles were compromising with the Jewish believers in the church, and they are saying, you know, let's give a few of these stipulations of the law to them so that there can be good fellowship and that the Gentiles don't do things that offend the Jewish conscience. Now, I will be honest and tell you that if the Gentiles would adhere to these three things, these necessary things, that would be a consequence of that action. There would be fellowship in the church because the Jewish mind, the conscience had been so seared towards not eating things that were strangled and not eating blood and having a kosher diet and having a clean diet. Remember, Daniel nearly died in Babylon because he wasn't going to eat the king's meat because it was not kosher meal. Daniel was willing, he had purpose in his heart not to defile himself. And so, this was, a, this was something that Peter was wrangling with when he said, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. He really believed that. Because that was part of his scruples as a Hebrew. So, there would be some of this. The Gentiles would be doing some things that would help bring them into favor with Jewish people and help establish their witness. But this is not why they gave the Gentiles these things. Because if they had done that, listen to this very carefully. If they had said, no, it's not a circumcision, and no, it's not of the law of Moses, except for these few things... They would have undermined the entire debate. They would have been still laying a burden of law-keeping on the Gentiles. So then why these things? Why these necessary things? See, Paul would later go into really great detail 
Paul would go into great detail to Jewish believers, or to Gentile believers, about how to work with their weaker brothers, the, Gentile, the Jews. Isn't it interesting that the Jewish believers were called the weaker brothers because they had more rules and regulations? You say, why would he call them weaker, weaker brothers if they had more rules and regulations? Well, because weaker people always have to have a crutch. They have to have things that help support them because they don't have the strength within to support them. The more mature believers, these Gentile believers who found freedom and liberty in Jesus Christ were able by the Spirit of God to live out that liberty in Christ. And by the way, that liberty was not a license to sin. Our liberty that we have in Jesus Christ is not a license that you can do whatever you want. I hear there's such an abuse of grace today in many churches where they're saying, hey, it's all of grace, so God loves you no matter what, so do whatever you want. Well, it's true that God loves you no matter what, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. Salvation is to change you, and let me tell you something right now. If I asked you today, what did Jesus do for you when he saved you, what would your answer be? If your answer is anything other than, what did Jesus do when he saved me? He crucified my old nature with all of its sin and its desires and its affections at Calvary, and he crucified it and took it out of the way, and he gave me a new life eternal, and he renewed me with God, and he gave into me a new heart and a pure heart so that I could live in Christ. If their answer is any other thing than that, you need to go back and look at your salvation. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul's going to deal with these Gentile believers and their stumbling blocks that they could put in the way of their Jewish believers. He's going to deal with that, questionable things about eating meats and, and, and you know, I mean, listen, should Gentile believers that are attending a church with other Jewish believers, and they're all in one church, and they get together and have a church barbecue, should Gentiles be barbecuing pork? We would all say yes. I mean, for the men's prayer breakfast at the Church of Antioch, should it really be bacon and eggs? We would say absolutely. I mean, if we haven't eaten bacon, have we really even had church? I mean, if we've not eaten some kind of, some kind of sausage or bacon or pork chop, I mean, listen, is there anything better than a fried pork chop with some rice and gravy and some fried okra and some, man, I'm getting hungry. I'm talking about something to dip your, listen, you say, well, that's so unhealthy. Brother, you don't know your Bible. And you got to wash all of that, you got to wash all of that down with sweet tea. I'm not talking about just sweet tea. I'm talking about tea that doubles as syrup. Listen, you're not drinking sweet tea right if a mosquito's not giving himself an insulin shot after he bites you. You say, well, is that in the Bible? Yes, Nehemiah wrote a letter to all the people in the book of Nehemiah and said, eat the fat and drink the sweet. That's in the Bible. But now let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Should Gentile believers invite their Jewish church members over to their home and provide them a pork dinner? No. Would it be wrong for the Gentile to eat pork? No. Would it be wrong for the Jew to eat pork? No, because God had sanctified all of that now. But should they do that? No, because it would offend my brother's conscience. And Paul said, as long as, as, long as there is an offense to my brother, I will not eat meat as long as the world stands. I'm not going to do that in front of them, even though I have the liberty to do that. But liberty is not licensed to do as I please. Liberty is the ability to do as he pleases. So then why these, why these things? Paul's going to deal with those table fellowship things in Romans chapter 14 and 15. He's going to deal with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Those are, those are messages that are going to flow from this as a, as a byproduct of this. But why this? And listen to me. Why this for this church? Because these are the three things or the, 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 the things that they wrote in this letter are the things for you. They're things for me. 
that if you want to do well and grow in your Christian life, you don't do these things in addition to your salvation for salvation. You do these things after salvation to grow and to work out this salvation. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at the first thing. Why these necessary things? Number one, I'm going to give you this point. Number one, because of repentance toward God. Look with me in verse number 19. Wherefore, James said, my sentence is that we trouble not them, watch this, which from among the Gentiles have what? Turned to God. Look over with me. Hold your, hold your Bible right there and go back a couple of chapters. We'll get there one of these years in Acts chapter 20. Look at Acts chapter 20 and verse number 21. Paul was, Paul was speaking here to the, uh, the believers here, and he said in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 21, he said, uh, I kept back nothing profitable unto you, but a testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, watch this, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what is salvation? Salvation comes when a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, understands that their sinfulness has offended the holy nature of God. That your life is an offense. Your sin is an offense to God, and your sins have separated you from God. Listen to me. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is of pure eyes to behold iniquity. God will never, God will never excuse sin. Sin must be punished. This is not a New Testament doctrine, by the way. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis when God said to Adam, Adam, I've given you all the trees in this garden to eat of freely, but this tree which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Listen to me. He said, and when you do, thou shalt surely die. The prophets preached, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. All through the law of Moses, the whole law was predicated on one thing. Our sin is an offense to God, and only by the shedding of blood is remission of sins. And wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Listen to me very carefully. The wages of sin is death. The payment for your sin is death. And you hear me, all of us are going to die. It is appointed unto man now once to die. And after that, the judgment. What do we do with that judgment? We're all going to die under the sentence of sin. But what do we do about the judgment? Listen to me very carefully. Because of the holiness of God and because of his righteousness, God God has already said, in his sight shall no flesh be justified except by faith through Jesus Christ. Friend, you better mark it down, plain, bold, and straight. Your sins and my sins will either be punished in hell forever, or they'll be pardoned at Calvary forever. That's the gospel. And when a person gets saved, they have been, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, made aware of their sin and their offense to God. And the Holy Spirit then turns them to Christ. And they look to Jesus Christ by faith. And by faith, they receive eternal life and they're made justified with God. That God justifies the ungodly through faith without the works of the law. A man who has turned to God by faith in Jesus Christ, that man is now clean every way from his sin. Everybody with me today? So Paul, so James says, look, my sentence is these people have turned to God, they've repented and turn towards God by faith in Jesus Christ. These Gentiles have been saved by turning to God, by placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this letter was written not to put these believing Gentiles back under the law of Moses, but watch this, but to put them under the universal law of God. Now, the law of Moses went into great detail about these things. 
But these things that they gave these Gentile believers were not from the law of Moses. These were the laws of God, the universal laws of God on all mankind from the very beginning. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Watch this very carefully, and I want you to hear this. God gave the law of Moses to his people to regulate these laws, to keep them as God's people, and they were to obey and abide by these laws under that old covenant. And when they broke the laws of God, they made sacrifice to God by the shedding of blood, and God purged their sins. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the Jews would shed blood, and God would give them atonement or covering for their sin for that year. But it's kind of like a loan that has a balloon payment. It just keeps coming due every year. It wasn't until Jesus died that the payment was satisfied and the veil rent in half and there was no more need of the mercy seat and a priest to come to God for us because now we have access through Jesus Christ to God once and for all. But the Gentile world was pagan and they were woefully ignorant of God and his holiness. The Jews had understood this law from the very beginning because they had Moses' law. This was not a compromise with the law of Moses. This was making the Gentile Gentile believers aware of binding laws from God that were on all men, and there's a reason why God put these laws on all men. Let me give them to you very quickly and we'll be dismissed. Number one was the, the regulation in this letter of no eating blood. Abstain from things strangled and from blood. Now, why would that be an important thing to tell the Gentiles? Well, because the Gentiles would have been people who had no kosher diet. The the law of Moses gave detail on all of this, but this goes way beyond the law of Moses. In fact, I want you to write down in your notes Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, right after the flood, when Noah came out of the ark... In Genesis chapter 9, in verse number 3, the Bible says this, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Now, this was new. This was new in in the world economy now because in Genesis chapter 2, God had declared that every green herb was your meat. Man was to live by the herb of the field, by the fruit of the vine, and man was to live by that which was grown. There was no death before the fall of man. But now the fall of man had come, and here's what happened. Because sin had entered the world, now this great flood had destroyed the world and its ecosystems. God says, meat shall, now, now flesh shall be meat for you. You're going to have to eat a meat diet. And here's what he said. He gave regulations about this in the very beginning. He said, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb, as I've given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof. And what is the life of the flesh? Blood. Which is the blood thereof shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require it. The life of man. Now God gave a regulation right here, universally binding, that this. You're going to have to eat meat. And you're going to take the life of an animal to sustain. And when you do, the life of that flesh is the blood. You do not eat that. Now, why would he make this a regulation? Well, because blood is not for food. And there are many people around the world, still many cultures, that eat it. And I don't understand it. Blood sausage and blood pancakes. Uh, that's not me. That might be for you, but it's God and I are on the same page. <laughs> it is not meat. It is not food. In Genesis 1.29, God had defined food as plant matter. Now in Genesis chapter 9, he says meat is going to have to be part of your diet, but not the blood of it. Now in the law of Moses, he gives an explanation of why this is true. Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So Genesis 9 has a command against intentional eating of blood. Now by the way, even if you take a steak that has been properly bled and all of that, if you, take, if you cook that thing to well done, which don't do that, you're not cooking all the blood out of it. 
So it doesn't mean that you have to eat your steak now all shoe leather. But God has a command against the intentional eating of blood. There is something fundamentally wrong with the consumption of blood, and I believe many diseases are passed that way. There were a lot of things physiological, but there's one great truth spiritually. And let me tell you what that was. It was the law of sacrifice. God put this law on all men of every kind. He put this law universally because this was a law of sacrifice. Sin had entered the world and death by sin. And so now when you were to eat, you were going to have to cause death. And when you die, that blood is meant for God. The blood was reserved for sacrifice, not for man's consumption. Now, many pagan cultures had taken the eating of blood and made it their, their diet. In fact, this is a message for another time, but many of these pagan cultures even believed if you ate the blood of your enemy, you absorbed their strength. And so, there was a fundamental law, a universal law of sacrifice. That blood is required to be spilled because of sin. It is not meant for man's consumption. Blood is meant for man's redemption. I don't have time to go through all of this today. We're already getting close to our time, but I want to hustle through this. But I want you to write this reference down. Hebrews chapter 9. I wish I had more time to go through all of this. But listen, Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to this. Um, The writing to the Hebrew believers. Listen to this in Hebrews 9 and verse number 12. Neither by the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Everybody look right here. When when they were giving this writing to the Gentiles, it was simply saying this, blood is not for your meat. Blood was meant for redemption. The blood is to be spilled If you are to eat the meat and you are to sustain life from that, that life is only going to be given to you on the basis of sacrifice. And God said, no blood. Number two, very quickly. This was a rule of sacrifice. Number two, very quickly. No fornication. He said in their letter, write to them that they abstain from fornication. Now, listen, this is not a Hebrew law. This is a universal law of God. Because in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24, God made male and he made female, and God performed the first wedding. And by the way, marriage is of God, not of gov. The government has no right to redefine marriage because they didn't invent it. It is not a construct of society. It is a command of God. God brings one man, one woman together in holy matrimony. Marriage is holy. Only as God defines marriage as one man and one woman. And there's a reason for that. Marriage is for the good of man. Adam had everything. He was in a paradise. He had everything he needed. He had a relationship with God. He had all the food that he needed. He lived in a very perfect world. And yet God said of Adam, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. So God made an help meet or fitting for him and brought Eve to Adam. And in that he said, for this purpose. Now he said, here's the, here's the reason. He said, for this shall a man leave his father and his mother. Now what does that tell us? It, everything you need to know is in this one verse about marriage. Everything you need to know is in this one verse. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother. The word leave tells us of the priority relationship of marriage. Marriage is the number one human relationship. It is the priority relationship. You listen to me. Your relationship with your mother and father is wonderful, and you need to honor them all the days of your life. But listen to me. You leave them for that relationship because that relationship is the fundamental relationship. It is the priority relationship in human relationships. It it transcends beyond your relationship between your children. 
your relationship to your husband and wife is a greater relationship than from mother to children or from father to children or from children to parents. God gives us right there, you leave your father and mother and you cleave to your wife. The cleaving brings us to the understanding that it is a permanent relationship. To cleave means to weld and to glue. God puts together these two. Why would God take a man and a woman and make them so different? He made them so different so he could make them one. In a permanent relationship, glued together. And let me tell you something, we've lost this kind of preaching today, but let not man put asunder what God hath joined together. Now, if you've already been through the wreck and the horrors and the difficulties of divorce, and you know the pain and suffering and scars that that brings, and God has grace and mercy for you and restoration for you, but you ought to be amening the pastor to let younger families know you're in this thing for the long haul. It's a permanent relationship that they may be one flesh. See, there's three verbs in this passage of Scripture. Leave, that's priority. Cleave, that's permanence. And then be one flesh. That's the purpose of marriage. God brought us together. The purpose of marriage is to take two and make them one so that through them, through them becoming joined, not only physically, thank God for the physical union of marriage. It's a gift of God. You young people, you listen to your pastor. You save yourself from marriage. Don't you live on some cheap shortcut to self-gratification. That is a selfish life. God has designed everything to be fulfilled in marriage. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But God has reserved sexual intimacy for the union of marriage. Anything outside of that is a cheap substitute and it's based in selfish gratification. You can call it love all you want, but it's self-love. And this is not popular preaching in a pornographic world, but let me tell you something. With the proliferation of pornography, and most likely even in this room, men, if you are looking at things and meditating on things, and you're going places on your, on your computer, you are committing fornication. Let me just remind you, God said, Jesus said out of his mouth, if a man looks upon a woman, by the way, whether in person or on screen or on paper, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery already with her in his heart. There is a priority to this thing. There's a purpose to this thing of bringing men and, men and women together to, to, listen, you can get with somebody and you can in this generation hook up with somebody and you can gratify your flesh, but you will plague your psyche with guilt and shame. And you will wound your spiritual life with God. It'll separate you from God. You'll find yourself like Adam hiding behind some bush somewhere away from God. God made you three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And marriage and sexuality is not just to satisfy the desires and appetites of our body, but it is also to make us one, not just physically, but psychologically, and not just psychologically, but spiritually. And only in marriage can all three parts of the person be satisfied and and all of those desires glorify God. Now, the Gentiles were ignorant of this. Many of their worship included idolatry. Listen, one of the reasons why God was so against idols in the Old Testament is because many of those idol worships were predicated on on illicit sexuality. I mean, why do you think the prophet said of of Israel, why do you go a-whoring with Baal and Ashdod? They were all rooted in the worship of sex. We still have that idol today. So it was written to them that they abstain from fornication. It was a written law from the very beginning. And Genesis chapter 6 shows us what God looks upon a world that's fully given itself over to lust. He flooded the world. That's why the Bible says, young people and old people, but the Bible says, flee fornication. Write down this reference in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Just jot those down. I promise you I'm coming to a landing. I'm trying to get there. 
For you know what commandment, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, for you know what commandments we, get, we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So let's teach these Gentiles that marriage is an institution of God, and that when you got saved, God sanctified that union of marriage, and you need to walk in that, and you need to walk in purity. Everybody with me today? So, the staying away from blood, that was a message of sacrifice. The staying away from fornication, that was a message of sanctification. And then lastly, and I'll just touch on this, he said, keep yourselves from idols, from idolatry. Now, that was a universal command that God had given, that you worship no other God but the Lord your God. The Bible tells us of the horrible history of the Gentile nations in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all uncleanness and against all unrighteousness, against those who hold the truth in unrighteousness, how they turned to idols. The Bible says, and they, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but they began to worship the creature more than the Creator. And through those idol-worshiping things, they gave themselves over to uncleanness. God finally gave them over to a reprobate mind. That was the history of the Gentile nations. Idolatry makes the creature to be more than the creator. Idolatry is man making God in his own likeness. Idolatry is robbing God of the glory due to him. When man makes God in his own image, that's blasphemy. Listen to what Paul said of the Thessalonican Christians in chapter 1, verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians. For they themselves show you what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This was a commandment for service. See, God had put universal laws on on mankind for this purpose. Here it is, listen to me. God put universal laws on mankind. That mankind would understand the law of sacrifice, that they would understand the law of sanctification, and that they would understand the law of service. Now, no man can ever have any of those until they've come to Jesus Christ for salvation. But once a man comes to Jesus Christ for salvation and is given a new heart, he is made righteous in Christ, but he needs to know, he needs to know if he's going to grow in this new life to abstain from fornication, to abstain from blood, and to abstain from idols. You say, well, pastor, I don't have any idols. I don't worship little statues. Listen to me very carefully. Anything that you love more, anything that you fear more, anything that you serve more, And anything that you value more than God is an idol to you. The Lord our God is one Lord and him only shall we serve. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It doesn't mean that we can have our gods, but our God is first. He said, no, when you come into my presence, you don't bring those gods with you. You you turn to me from idols. Now, here's the whole point of the message. Christianity is Christ and Christ alone. And these disciples were not putting the burden of the Old Testament law on the Gentiles. What they were showing these Gentiles is the first principles of God's law in living out the Christian life, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. That Christ was to be worshiped, that he was our sacrifice, that he is our sanctification, that Jesus has purged us from all these sins, and he is worthy of our worship. And listen, he was telling these Gentile believers, let's go on now that you've been saved, let's go on 
and live a life of cleanness and holiness. Not in order to be saved, but because you have been saved. Don't you ever think for one moment that you can obey your way to heaven. Don't ever think for one moment that you can take three things and put it all down and say, well, if I just live out these, my good will outweigh my bad. Friend, listen to me. You don't understand the weight of your sin. If you want to understand the weight of your sin, look what it did to Jesus at Calvary. Sin is only paid in one place, and that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to live within us. By his blood we are washed. We are sanctified through him, and then we are to serve him and not allow idols not allow idols. John was writing, one of the last things John wrote in his first epistle was, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is a fundamental law. They were not putting them under the law of Moses. They were bringing them back into repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ, knowing that I am crucified with Christ And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed today. Lord, I pray today that you would take this message and that you would make it living and real to every hearer right now. Lord, I pray for those in this room that do not know you as a personal savior, that today salvation would be a new and living reality to them, that they would know what it means to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray for the Christian here today who has allowed things to come into his Christian life and to mar his fellowship with you, that today would be a day of cleansing and confession and repentance of sin that we would once again see sin confessed and forgiven, not again to salvation, but Lord, to our our walking and fellowshipping with you, that we would turn from idols that we've erected in our own lives, and that Lord, you would be alone worthy of our worship. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed this morning. Who's here this morning would say this? Pastor Miller, I don't know for sure that Christ is my savior. I don't know for sure that Jesus has forgiven my sins, but I wanna get that settled today. Would you slip your hands way up high and just say, that's me. I don't know that for sure. God bless you, God bless you. I see your hands, God bless you. God bless you to my right. Several of you have raised your hand this morning. Who else would join these and say, pastor, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. I need to be saved today. I need to know what it is. To get this settled once and for all, to get it settled, would you pray? Pray for me, God bless you, I see your hand. I wanna say a word to those of you who just raised your hand a moment ago. In just a minute, I'm gonna have everyone that's able to, to stand. In the Bible, Jesus always gave a public invitation. He always invited people publicly to come to Christ. Now let me tell you what I'm, I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna ask you to come to join a church, but I'm gonna ask you to by faith come to Christ. So here's what we've done. I have some men and some ladies right back here in the back that are waiting for you. And when I have everyone stand, I'm gonna have you slip from your seat and just walk right to the back. Now, walk right to the back and you say, well, I don't know what to say. It doesn't matter. You don't have to say anything. (laughs) They'll see you coming or all you can say is, I wanna receive Christ. That's it, I want to receive Christ. I'm coming to Jesus. That's all you gotta say. And they will rejoice with you they're going to take you and show you some scriptures, and they're going to seal that decision with prayer. And that's it. It's that simple. Now, I can't come for you, but I'm pleading with you. I can invite you to come to Jesus. And if you'll come to him, let me give you the authority of his word. He said, all that come to me, I will receive, and I will in no wise cast them out. If you come to Jesus, <laughs> he'll take you today. How many of you would say, Pastor, God dealt with my heart today about some things in my own life, idols or some things where it's not pleasing to God, God dealt with me. Would you slip your hand way up high, way up high. My hand is with yours. God bless you. God bless you. Father, I pray for these who've raised their hand today who do not know Christ, that right now by faith they would take one step of faith. And Lord, that simple 
step of faith, you'll meet them right there. And they will know what eternal life is. They will know you as a wonderful Lord and Savior. I pray that God's people will come to you today in doing business with how you've done business with us. In Jesus' name. If you're able to, with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand quietly to our feet. If you're able to stand this morning, would you stand with me? I'm going to ask an invitation hymn to begin to be played. And as that piano is beginning to be played, if you raised your hand this morning, I want you to step out right now. Just step out and go right to the back. Just step out right now and go right to the back. And one of the ladies, one of the ladies will meet you right there. Somebody can go with you. Don't let anything stand between you and the Lord. I want you to go. Just take that one step of faith. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You say, well, I might feel embarrassed. Well, listen, Jesus was not ashamed to take your sins. He was not ashamed of you. Jesus took your sins willfully on the cross. And he's asking you to come to him. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. I'm so thankful to see people coming to Christ. Last Sunday evening, my wife and I sat down with two people, young man and young lady, they were here this morning, who didn't know Christ. We sat down with them for a little while and just went through the Bible with them. And let me tell you, (laughs) to see the joy, the joy in their lives, just taking that step to come to Christ. They didn't make a commitment to join a church or to live a better life. No, listen, they just came to Jesus to take his life, and he took theirs. Jesus took, he'll take your life today and take all your sin, and he'll give you his life and all his righteousness. (laughs) Uh, Would you come today? Father, today I rejoice in the power of the gospel, how the gospel penetrates to the very inner man, dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And Lord, the word of God is so wonderful and powerful. It will never return void. And Lord, the seed and the message has been sown today. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, it will fall in good ground. And many will receive it today and bear good fruit to your honor and glory that our lives would be growing in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we live with good conscience toward God. Lord, let nothing, let nothing disrupt our fellowship with Christ. Lord, I pray that we would keep that way clean and we would live a life that would be pleasing in your sight through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through the power of the flesh, but through the power of Christ in us. And I pray today that would be a living reality for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.